Hi, welcome to Playing in the Sandbox, Conversations About Pedagogy. My name is Katherine Troyer. I'm the Assistant Director of the Collaborative for Learning and Teaching here at Trinity University. The origin story for this podcast was that every time I asked myself the question, what is the difference between a good professor and a great professor, the same word kept coming to mind, play. And I don't mean games when I think of play, although I think games can be an important component. What I really mean is something much more basic and foundational to what it means to be human. It's about that curiosity and inquisitiveness. It's about passion, a willing to experiment, and the ability to fail and try again and to fail and try again. I think that play is at the heart of what makes for successful learners. And so I think that play is absolutely necessary for professors to think about when they are working on producing the best learning experiences possible. Today I want to talk about discussion. And I want to get, begin by saying that I don't think we should be using this paradigm where we have discussion on one end and lecture on the other, and that it has to either be the sage on the stage that is the lecture model or the guide by the side that is the discussion model and that the two can never mix because I think that's silly. I don't think that's how play works. I think play is about shifting between modes, between sort of absorbing and and putting out. And I think that discussion and lecture can and should go hand in hand. So it's not a matter of which one is better, discussion or lecture. Rather, it should be a question of which tool best benefits me at this moment with my specific goal that I have in mind. And within that, it becomes even more nuanced because not all discussions are the same. Not all discussions have the same goals in mind. And so I want to spend some time today thinking about what is discussion for? How can it promote the types of playful inquiry that we want from our students and then what are some just like practical ways that you can encourage that in the classroom in their book discussion is a way of teaching stephen d brookfield and stephen preskill offer what they term 15 benefits of discussion and i thought it would be worthwhile to just read their 15 benefits and then lump them into a couple of um, patterns that i'm noticing that we can then further unpack so here are the 15 benefits that they offer it helps students explore a diversity of perspectives. It increases students' awareness of and tolerance for ambiguity or complexity. It helps students recognize and investigate their assumptions. It encourages attentive, respectful listening. It develops new appreciation for continuing differences. It increases intellectual agility. It helps students become connected to a topic. It shows respect for students' voices and experiences. It helps students learn the processes and habits of democratic discourse. It affirms students as co-creators of knowledge. It develops the capacity for the clear communication of ideas and meaning. It develops habits of collaborative learning. It increases breadth and makes students more empathetic. It helps students develop skills of synthesis and integration. And finally, it leads to transformation. Brookfield and Preschool spend the next several pages of their book looking at the unique sort of nuanced aspects of these 15 different benefits. And if you have the time, I, I highly recommend that you look at that section. But 
what I think is interesting is that although these 15 benefits are very unique and nuanced, they also fit into these larger sort of buckets that I think offer some interesting ways to approach the question of why should we have discussions? And so one of the reasons that we should have discussions according to these 15 benefits is because they allow students to have a variety of perspectives and to have a conversation that can feel very real and authentic because of the fact that they are being exposed to different viewpoints, different ideas, different worldviews. Another way to answer the question of why we should have discussions is because it allows for true or it can allow for true dialogue. And so this is about discussion as conversation, and that means listening as well as speaking. It means being able to articulate your own ideas as well as synthesize the ideas of others. And then the last reason that we should be having discussions, the last sort of big bucket, is because it allows for students to, and I'm going to use Brookfield and Preschool's term, be co-creators of knowledge. It allows for a real sense of control and agency in the conversation that is learning. So what I want to do at this point is divide those three sort of buckets um, about perspectives, about dialogues, and about about co-creation and use them as a way to approach and think about discussion. And so the rest of this particular episode is going to be focused on this question of perspectives and how we can be getting multiple perspectives in our classrooms so that we really are allowing that to be a really meaningful reason that we're having discussion. The only way for discussion to become a vehicle for meaningful interactions from multiple perspectives is to ensure that we actually have multiple perspectives speaking up and talking in the discussion. J.R. Howard in his book Discussion in the College Classroom has a whole chapter dedicated to the this idea of the challenge of the dominant talkers. And I want to read to you uh, a passage from his book because I think it really sheds light on what is a very serious situation and one that we may not entirely realize. So in 1976, there was a study done to see how many people were talking in the classroom, and it was found that only a small number of students Uh, would comprise anywhere between 75 and 95 percent of the talking that was happening in a discussion. And so Howard and his colleagues replicated that study in 2006. And I'm going to read to you what it says. In a study of 15 sections of the introductory sociology course taught by nine different instructors at a large Midwestern university, my colleagues and I found that in the typical 75-minute class period, there were 49 instances of student verbal participation. That's a lot of discussion going on. On average, there was one student comment or question every minute and a half. I don't know about you, but if I had students speaking up every 90 seconds, my initial reaction would be that I had done a great job of engaging my students in discussion. After class, I'd be patting myself on the back on the way back to my office. However, upon closer examination, we found that was not the whole story. In fact, that version of the story was quite misleading. While there was a considerable amount of conversation taking place, not all students were participating, nor were students participating equally. In the typical class session we observed, only 12 of the 39 students present spoke up at all. That means 27 students, 70% of those in attendance, never spoke during the observed class period. Of the 12 students participating in a typical class session, 
six of them spoke up only once, while the other six accounted for 92% of all the student interactions. And then he goes on to talk about how their findings uh, fit with other similar studies in terms of the norms of how conversations are shaped and who's contributing and who's not. What's interesting about this is that first, I think we tend to just think, wow, that was a good conversation. There was so much talking without necessarily thinking, wow, that was a good conversation. There were so many talkers. There were so many participants. It breaks down to a really simple formula. The more people you have talking, the more room or opportunity you have for diversity of perspectives and thoughts. So the fewer people you have talking, the fewer perspectives you have being shared into that space of the classroom discussion. But it's a little bit more complicated than that because the truth of the matter is, is that there's some really compelling evidence that those people who are dominating the conversation are typically cisgender, they identify as male, they are often white and they're often heterosexual. And this means that if you have, say, six people dominating 92% of the conversation, you may not even have six different perspectives. You may, because each one of those people is bringing new things to the table, but you're not having the diversity and the inclusion that I think most people want when they're thinking about using discussion to promote a variety of perspectives. If you're interested, there's some very fascinating research in Howard's book about why that might be the case, that there are certain types of students who habitually tend to be the dominant speakers in the classroom. And it gets complicated because some of it has to do with making some cultured statements about gender to which there is always an outlier. Some of it has to do with talking about the fact that certain groups of students have not been traditionally supported or may not feel supported at a specific institute or in a specific classroom or with a specific subject matter. And so there's lots of really interesting scholarship that you can look at if you're interested in how and why the demographic of the dominant talkers tends to fall the way it does. But what I would like to talk about are some things that we can do now that we have that information in mind. And one of the first things is that I think it is incredibly important for us to share that information with our students, that there are dominant talkers and that there are certain trends that emerge when we look at the dominant talkers. One thing that you could do is to actually have students create a heat map. And you could either have one student who's in charge of it for a class period and it's sort of a rotating responsibility, or you could spend a class period where everyone has to heat map. And what will happen is students will discover that there are certain pockets of the classroom where people talk more, that there are certain students who talk exponentially more than other students, that there are students who, when they talk, only look at or acknowledge other students instead of acknowledging the wider class. And so that can be one way that you can encourage a greater participation with from multiple perspectives is by helping students to first see how limited even the really lively discussions are. There are a number of other things that you could do. One of them is that you can ensure that your quieter talkers, your quieter students have ample opportunity to express their thoughts. 
we think about and we describe discussion as being primarily a vocal or oral participation. However, discussion doesn't have to be. We try to get our students all the time to acknowledge that writing is part of a conversation, that it is having a discussion with your readers. And so we can use that as one way to solicit or hear from multiple perspectives, offering students opportunities for reflective writing practices where you can ask them things like, what was the muddiest section of today? What was the part that didn't make sense? What was the most important concept that you felt was articulated? Or one of my favorites, what was the nugget that you took away from today and think other people should as well? And after you've given people that opportunity to discuss in a different form, to discuss in writing, you can call upon people and more people will often contribute because they've had time to compose themselves. They've had time to sort of gird their loins if that's something that makes them uncomfortable just sort of randomly talking in class. And so remember that discussion is not just oral, it can be written as well. And so finding ways to incorporate that is a very important practice. There are softwares that you can use, like polling softwares, that you could ask a question and everyone could anonymously put their answers up and then you could read through them together and use that to sort of found or shape the conversation. You could have it be that they can post things all along during the class so that if they have a question that comes up or if they have a statement that they want to say, um, it can just pop up in the middle of things and you can pause and sort of incorporate that into things. I wouldn't suggest doing that every time because I think there is um, some real sort of benefits to be gained from encouraging students to have live discussions, discussions that are not solely reliant upon technology, but it is a good way to help ensure every so often that you're hearing the perspectives that you want to hear from. One way to ensure that you're ha hearing from multiple people, that you're hearing from your dominant as well as your non-dominant speakers, is to employ a number of activities. I think that we have to be careful with certain things like think, pair, share, because it's, you know, we oftentimes act as though it's this sort of innovative and wild technique that we're using when in reality it's something that people have been using for decades now. But there is a really good reason for why we do that, and that's to allow people to talk together. And then you could have it be whoever has not spoken recently has to contribute what the group finding is uh, or what the pairing finding is. You could do something, implement something, where each person has to talk a certain number of times um, in a certain period of time. And until everyone has done that, you cannot call upon someone else. You could do something where you randomize the list of students and say, okay, this is the order in which we're going to be discussing things today. Um, and when we get to the next person, you have to find a time to speak up um, and we won't move on until the next person does. But you're not in a rush. You have some time. You have some wiggle room. There can be a lot of anxiety uh, in that approach. And so if you're going to do it, I think you need to have built the environment that's going to allow for that sort of comfortableness in, in knowing that you're, quote, on deck. But there are other things that I've seen faculty do that are fantastic ways to allow students to be, quote, on deck, but to have been able to prepare ahead of time. A really simple technique would be to say, okay, for whatever we're looking at for the next class period, you students need to find one example of this and be prepared to share it. You students need to be able to have one idea concerning that. You group of students need to have one question that you think we should be answering. 
And then what happens is they all have time to prepare. And so you can allow each of them to say their, their piece because they've each had time outside of class to prepare for how that's going to be in class. There are two other things I want to talk about. And one of them is a little bit more involved, but I think is definitely worth pursuing. Brookfield and Preskill have something that they call critical incident questionnaires. And I'm honestly not super wild about the name, but I really think the idea is fantastic. And essentially, it's this classroom evaluation tool that you do every couple of class periods. And you ask questions that are, at what moment in class this week were you most engaged as a learner? At what moment in class this week were you most distanced as a learner? What action that anyone in the room took this week did you find most affirming or helpful? What action that anyone in the room took this week did you find most puzzling or confusing? What surprised you most about the class this week? And they suggest doing it just once a week. It takes about 10 minutes of class time. And this becomes a way for students to begin to think, oh, you know what? Not hearing from everyone has really put a damper on things. Or the fact that so-and-so always talks really actually has helped me pull back from or resist the learning that's happening. And so doing some sort of questionnaire where you were, again, helping students to see just the truth of how conversation that is happening is very powerful. The last thing I want to talk about is something that is admittedly very controversial. In 2017, there was an article produced in the National Review that is entitled Anti-Racist, I Will Always Call on My Black Women Students First. And this article begins by saying, Stephanie McKellip, a graduate teaching assistant in history at the University of Pennsylvania, drew notice last week for her promotion of a little-known progressive pedagogy. As McKellip explained in a tweet, I will always call on my black women students first. Other people of color get second-tier priority, white women come next, and if I have to, white men. And this practice, McKellop says, is not new to her, that it is actually sort of a, a well-used method that is called progressive stacking. And there's lots of interesting articles about this, including in the Chronicle of Higher Education, that look at the idea that progressive stacking is an acknowledgement that traditional pedagogical techniques have silenced marginalized voices. And so progressive stacking, which has been around since the 1990s, allows for this sort of anti-bias of starting with the voices that are going to be least frequently heard, moving to the voices that are typically going to be most frequently heard. As I said, this is super controversial and you can find people that will be very vehemently for and very vehemently against this particular way to ensure that you're actually receiving the variety of perspectives that you want in your classroom. I don't want to advocate, honestly, either for or against it, because again, I think it's a really complicated subject. But progressive stacking reveals, I think, what we should all be seeking to do, and that is to find intentional ways that we can encourage our students to be playing in our classroom, to encourage our students to have turns, because play does involve people taking turns. It does involve allowing others to do their thing so that we can better do ours. And so that is in a super nutshell, a couple of ways that you can help ensure that when you are having discussions in your classroom, you are inviting and allowing the opportunity for as many perspectives as possible. In the next podcast, 
I'm going to talk specifically about dialogue and about thinking of discussion as a conversation, which means a give and a take, a listen and a response, and ways that we can promote that so that we're not just having students sharing their thoughts, but not listening to what other people have to say in the room. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to continuing my discussion with you later about discussion. Mm -hmm.